Kia ora koutou, It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start with uh, the title for my talk, um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, but Who Really Does? Obviously, it comes from uh, the, the title of a song by Tears for Fears, a uh, great 1980s band. I, don't, I didn't choose it just because I grew up in the 80s, partly in the 80s, partly in other decades. Um, but because I, I thought it would be helpful to explore this question because I think many people have the impression these days that the pace of change uh, in the world has been speeding up. We seem to be uh, buffeted by one crisis or another. Um, and if we think just about the last few years, let me give you a, a sort of a partial, a partial list. So we might think about ongoing or compounding economic crises, perhaps beginning with the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, continuing on and off to the present day. We're facing inflation, uh, the threat of this uh, scary word stagflation, which, which reared its head in the 1970s and might be coming back. Uh, we think of the rise of political extremism around the world, often associated with uh, extreme nationalist or, or racist uh, ideologies. And of course, uh, those hit close to home uh, in the terrible attacks in Christchurch uh, a few years ago. Then we have the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been really an extraordinary experience, uh, sort of uh, a worldwide experienced almost everywhere in the world uh, at the same time. And of course now the possibility of perhaps another uh, new pandemic in monkeypox. This year, we, of course, we were shocked by uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and of course there are ongoing conflicts um, in other parts of the world. And underneath all this and complicating all this, uh, the, the growing rumble of climate change, not to mention other environmental crises, the loss of biodiversity and so on. If you spend any time watching the news, uh, you might come away feeling overwhelmed maybe, by feelings of, of chaos, or of desperation, hopelessness, maybe anger at what's going on in the world. And this might be partly uh, because of the kind of instantaneous nature of our media and our social media these days. But I think there is a deep sense that events are kind of spinning out of control, that there is nobody really in charge, and also that there are no rules, that there is no law, no legal authority uh, to keep the bad actors in check. In my research and, and writing, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about these two senses of rule together. So how are we ruled? How are we governed internationally and transnationally? And what is the place of rules? What's the place of law, legal standards, principles, and so on in, in global governance? And in particular, my research focuses on international law and even more narrowly on uh, certain kinds of international organizations in the governmental organizations which are formed by governments and then subject to international law as a way of governing the world. But of course, international law and international organizations are only one part, one part of the picture. I try to approach that part of the picture through a kind of historical and socio-legal lens to try to see how the way the world is governed has changed over time. Uh, what are the political forces uh, what are the social forces, what are the ideas, what are the practices, what are the technologies that influence uh, global governance? Not just who rules and what the rules are, but how the rules got to, got to be that way, uh, and what are the wider contexts of social change and so on. So 
I'd like to bring these perspectives, these kinds of perspectives to bear on, on this topic uh, this evening. And I can't promise to have all the answers, and I can't promise that the answers that I have are going to be very cheerful answers, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to say. I mean, there's no question that we're facing really enormous, enormous challenges uh, uh, and really complex and stubborn problems in the world as a, as a planet, as a species within a, a wider ecology. But what I think I might be able to do is offer you some tools, maybe uh, a perspective to see where we are in terms of sort of the evolution of global rule, how we got here, and then, and then where we might be going uh, in the future, possibly. So what I think I'll do is I'll start by um, outlining some kind of big theories about who rules the world, which, which offers some big picture answers. Uh, and then I'll uh, look uh, or sketch really briefly a few uh, snapshots of key moments in time over the past century or so. So we can sort of see how who rules the world has changed uh, at different periods and, uh, and in different ways. Uh, and then I'll wrap up by trying to pick out some, some trends, some, some overall themes uh, that maybe uh, help to put things in a certain perspective, maybe will inform uh, your own actions, maybe your, your plans to rule the world uh, going away from this, from this evening. So let me um, outline a few of the big theories, sort of the high-level answers about who rules the world uh, that are out there. One answer is that really nobody's in charge, no one rules. And um, this might be the answer that in a way resonates with us uh, the most uh, at, this, at this point. Maybe it's what we feel now, maybe at our lowest points. And it's also reflected in a basic assumption of a lot of scholarship about um, international relations, which says that international relations is basically anarchic, which doesn't mean that it's completely chaotic, but it does mean that there is no supreme ruler. There's no hierarchical sovereign that can sort of coerce the rest of the world into conformity uh, uh, with a particular uh, set of ideas or practices. A second answer uh, to who rules the world might be, well, it's the powerful states, obviously. It's states like the United States of America, or it's China, or it's Russia, or it's some combination of those kinds of states. And this is also a popular view, I think. It's, it's reflected in international relations um, uh, approaches that are called realist approaches. And, and this is sort of the idea that, it, it, that states are the real locus, the real sites of power in the world, even if there is no formal hierarchy or, or sovereign. Okay, that's, that's a second possibility. A third possibility is uh, the view that capitalism rules the world. So, or, or maybe capitalists, or maybe something called a global or transnational capitalist class. So obviously, these are ideas strongly associated with Marxist views of international relations. Um, but today, we might say it's the global corporations that rule the world. It's the, it's the tech giants. It's the billionaire class. It's the 1%. So that's that, that sort of view that, that those guys are the guys that are really in charge. Sometimes a view is expressed that really we are now being uh, ruled by a different kind of elite, and that is uh, the experts. So these are the pointy-headed types that, that think they know best and tell us uh, what, what, what to do. So these are the economists and the scientists and the engineers, uh, maybe the doctors, maybe also the lawyers, I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, but some of the so-called you know, populist backlash 
of the past decade or so uh, has sort of fed on this sense that we need to take back control from the technocrats, from these elites that uh, think they know what's best for us, but really, you know, we know what's best for us. There's a related idea here that you see in some of the literature that says actually what's, what's going on here is that we're being ruled by numbers. So these are the statistics, the measurements, the indicators and so on uh, that are often produced and used by experts that kind of uh, subtly or not so subtly guide us, shape us, shape our desires and so on. So think about, for example, the power of the number that we call GDP, right? That number that tells us whether Uh, an economy is growing or shrinking, whether we should vote for a government or, or against a government. Think about the numbers on the stock exchange. Uh, think about COVID-19 infection numbers. There was a time, I think we're not there now, but there was a time when we were looking every day, you know, we were tuning in at one o'clock, whatever the time was, and we were finding out what the number was, and that would determine how we felt about the day and, and where the world was going. Um, and think more broadly, I guess, about algorithms and how much of the world is kind of uh, now structured around uh, algorithms. Okay, what about law? So I told you that, that I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer. Um, what about international law, international organizations? Do they rule the world in any meaningful sense? Well, um, it's possible to find some websites out there about international organizations like the United Nations or the World Bank. Uh, which describe these organizations as the instruments of some shadowy conspiracy and elite that really is pulling the strings and you know, ruling the world. But um, I would say as somebody who, who examines, who studies these organizations closely, uh, uh, that's not the case, uh, 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 whether it's attractive or not to you. Um, most scholars who study, say, international relations, Uh, or international economics or finance would actually say that international law and international organizations are more or less epiphenomenal. And um, epiphenomenal is a fancy way of saying that they are beside the point, uh, that they are secondary factors that uh, you know, are caused by other more important factors. And, so, and it's always a bit hurtful to be told that you're, um, that you're beside the point, and especially if the person telling you that uses a fancy word, right? That makes, that's just like makes the sting much worse. If they just tell you you're beside the point, that would be okay. But if they tell you you're epiphenomenal, that's really, it hits, it hits hard. So anyway, this is uh, my area of scholarly interest, the law, international organizations. I won't take it personally if you think that law is irrelevant um, to the question of who rules the world. I'm inclined also to think that lawyers probably put too much faith in law Uh, too much faith in sort of institutional structures. But I think the law does play uh, important roles in shaping, uh, enabling, and legitimizing different forms of rule, and sometimes, sometimes, sometimes also uh, providing a means to resist, uh, to push back against certain kinds of rule. Let me um, turn to my three snapshots of, of who rules the world. Um, and I'll go through these uh, quite quickly. Uh, so you'll, ex you'll, you'll forgive me that I don't cover all the details that you, you might think uh, are really important. I want to focus on three kind of points in time. One about 100 years ago, one about the middle of the 20th century, and one kind of now, if we say now is quite broad, like the last couple of decades maybe. Um, it'll be, these, this, these sort of uh, snapshots are kind of flexible. And I want to, at, at each of these points, sort of see who ruled, who, who was ruling the world. 
I don't want to define the snapshots too, too narrowly, as I said. I want to get a sense of the changes, or, or I want to convey a little bit of the sense of the changes that were happening at, that at those times, not just a sort of a, a, a you know, frozen picture. Um, so, okay, so beginning with 100 years ago, if we look back to uh, about a century ago, maybe a little bit longer, the question of who rules the world would probably have a fairly simple, straightforward answer. You would say empires and states. Empires and states would, would cover, cover most of it, right? Um, uh, and until 100 years ago, um, empires had still ruled most of the world until fairly recently, until the end of the First World War, in, in 19, around 1918, around that time. Some empires were collapsing at the end of the war, just after the war. New states were coming into being. But you would broadly say empires and states uh, rule the world. You might also be able to make an argument for capitalism or, or the capitalist class or, or capital or so on. There were some big and powerful banks. There were you know, these, sort of, these tycoons, these, these robber barons uh, who are the, the equivalents of today's billionaires. Um, there were relatively few global corporations uh, and they had much less power, much less reach than uh, they do today for sure. The relationships among states and empires were managed by diplomats essentially. There were relatively few international institutions, international organizations uh, at the time. And these diplomats, you know, the, their role was, was representing their foreign officers, essentially. They didn't really have with them a lot of kind of scientific expertise of the kind, or, or specialist e expertise, say, in economics and so on, of the kind that we, we think today. So I'd like to just look at a few different areas of rule um, at, at that time. There were few rules about war, about how to conduct war, about when uh, one state could or could not invade another state, how it could do it. There were few laws in the area that we call international humanitarian law. The League of Nations had just been created 100 years ago. That was uh, the first international organization sort of with a global reach that aimed at collective security, that, that aimed to prevent war. And a few years later, there was something called the Treaty of Paris, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, that aimed to outlaw war, but it didn't, it didn't sort of catch on uh, very much. In the area of economic relations, about this time 100 years ago, Europe and North America were emerging from a pretty deep recession um, after the First World War. And of course, they were about to go into an even deeper depression uh, just a few years later, uh, at the end of the decade, end of the 1920s. But the dominant economic model was one of, of laissez-faire, of, of laissez-faire liberalism. So this involved relatively little state control or intervention. It was centered on ideas like the gold standard that had been inherited from the 19th century. And the League of Nations was partly established on, on that assumption, that the gold standard, that there would be a return to the gold standard, um, that we would continue with the great 19th century globalization uh, 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 through laissez-faire. Uh, and the League of Nations developed monetary and financial committees to kind of deal with those things and started to build up some sort of expertise in those areas. In the area of public health, uh, the world was just emerging from uh, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 to 1919, uh, which had infected nearly a third of the global population. And we don't know exactly how many people died from the Spanish flu, but estimates are something in the range of 17, maybe 50, up to 50, some people say up to 100 million. Uh, people uh, uh, died from the Spanish flu. 
And again, most of the governance of pandemics at the time was in the hands of individual states. There wasn't a global system for combating uh, pandemics. There had been some international sanitary conferences and sanitary commissions that were established in the 19th century, uh, other small organizations like that, but it, it didn't amount to really a global system. In the area of the environment, there was relatively, again, relatively little uh, being done, relatively few environmental laws, regulations, even domestically. So that picture obviously changed. So let me skip forward to uh, about the middle of the 20th century. And the picture changed partly because of the failure of the League of Nations, the outbreak of the Second World War, changing ideas about the state, about governance itself, right? Like the, the move away from sort of laissez-faire liberalism to the idea of the welfare state. But around the middle of the, 19, of the 20th century, we see a cons considerably more complex picture than 100 years ago. So now, middle of the 20th century, States are still important, of course. There are still empires. Uh, but decolonization is starting to get underway, a big wave of decolonization is starting to get underway, which means that a bunch of European empires are being dismantled. And the number of states doubles between 1945 and 1960 because of the collapse of, of empires or, or decolonization. There are still, of course, two large dominant states uh, the United States of America and the USSR, and they have their spheres of influence. So the world is sort of divided up between, roughly between East and West, uh, along these Cold War lines. There are now many more international organizations. Um, uh, at the end of the Second World War, the United Nations is established, and with it is established a whole bunch of specialized agencies. And the idea here is that these organizations are established on the principle of functional decentralization, which means instead of what they had before, which was the League of Nations, which tried to combine a whole lot of different functions, the international organizations established at the end of the Second World War tried to decentralize those functions into a bunch of different international organizations. And those uh, specialized agencies carried out or supported the carrying out of a whole range of state functions, especially especially in the decolonized world. And often they tried to kind of replicate the Western state model of the welfare state uh, in, in the decolonized world. Each of these agencies drew on and helped to build an international community of experts related to their particular work, whether it was public health or economics, monetary matters, uh, uh, food and agriculture, whatever it might be. And so around these international organizations, stimulated by them, in part, there grew these, what, what are called epistemic communities, ec communities of experts that uh, contribute to what we think now of as maybe sort of a kind of expert rule. There were also regional organizations, and you can think, for example, of the European coal and steel community, other regional organizations around the world uh, coming up, and a growing number of multinational uh, corporations. Uh, coming out of the Second World War, there was a kind of a gradual process of globalization of markets through the 1950s and 1960s, and then a sharp acceleration, sharper and sharper acceleration through the 1970s and 1980s. Okay, in the field of international peace and security, of course, the United Nations was the central organization here. The charter, the UN Charter, prohibited 
aggression, the Charter attempted to set up a stronger system of collective security centered on the, the Security Council. Uh, the UN never really worked as it was intended. Um, there was supposed to be a standing army for the United Nations that the Security Council uh, would send out to do its bidding. Of course, the Cold War intervened. The Security Council became deadlocked. The, the great powers who had the veto uh, on the Security Council prevented it from really doing very much. Instead, uh, a different kind of practice evolved, which was peacekeeping. And peacekeeping took mostly, mostly took place in the in the decolonized world, in those places where empire was collapsing. Um, there were fewer and fewer invasions of one state by another state, and more and more situations where there were wars of independence or civil wars. And these were the kinds of situations where peacekeeping uh, uh, really came into its own. In terms of economics, there was a whole range of international organizations set up to try to deal with different parts of, of the global economy, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, a whole bunch of UN uh, agencies and programs dealing with aspects of, of development. And again, in part through these international organizations, there was the emergence of a kind of a, a, a global uh, a discipline of economics and a community of economic experts who produced all sorts of uh, statistics about the economy, about demographics, uh, and so on. In the realm of public health, again, a specialized agency, the World Health Organization was established in 1948. Uh, this had much broader reach and a much greater mandate than anything was, that was established under the League of Nations. And again, a lot of its work was being done in, in developing countries, providing technical assistance to governments to help build up their public health systems, advocating certain kinds of policies for public health, leading vaccination campaigns, those, those sorts of things. In the area of the environment, things move much more slowly. Um, there was growing awareness of the problem of pollution, um, and there were efforts, growing efforts to, to regulate pollution domestically. But there was no UN agency on the environment for actually for quite a long time. It was, wasn't until 1972, there was an important conference held in Stockholm on the human environment, and then in 1974, the UN Environmental Program uh, was established. And that's been the lead environmental international organization uh, since that time. Okay, now I'm starting to kind of push into the third uh, snapshot, which is the current moment, which, as I said, is kind of a stretchy current moment. So let me just get to that. Where are we today? Well, there's a much more complex uh, picture of world rulers or global governance uh, today. Much, much more complex. States, of course, are still important, especially the really powerful states. But now there are around 195 countries, uh, independent states in the world, another 50 or so territories, which tells you that there are still empires uh, out there. There are something like uh, 500 intergovernmental organizations doing work in the world, either at the global kind of level, with global reach, or at regional, uh, in regional uh, configurations. Some of them are very powerful, like the European Union, which really acts like a state uh, in many ways. Global corporations, as we know, have multiplied, have grown enormously. Um, now they're not just manufacturing, but they are tech giants and they're whole new areas of, of, of commerce. There's also a really growing level of involvement of private, private sector companies, um, but also private foundations in all 
kinds of global governance. And through these and through the international organizations, we again see more and more of this kind of rule by experts, rule by expertise uh, and numbers. So we could say that we are now ruled uh, more than ever and by more actors than ever and probably even by more law, more international, transnational uh, law than ever. So let me just quickly again go through some of those issues. Um, in the realm of international peace and security, obviously states are still really important actors. The United States remains far and away the dominant military power, certainly not omnipotent as we've seen in its, in its uh, recent adventures. Military action by one state against another is certainly less common than it was uh, you know, 100 years ago or even around the middle of the, the 20th century, but it still happens. We saw it in the Middle East, uh, led by uh, the United States. We've seen it in Georgia and Ukraine, uh, uh, led by Russia. But now non-state actors are also playing a really important role in the conflicts that we see around the world. Think, for example, of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, which even managed to hold areas of territory and function almost like mini-states. In terms of international institutions, the main uh, global security organization is still the United Nations. It still carries out peacekeeping operations uh, in different parts of the world. And the Security Council is still blocked by the veto. It's still unable to take important actions uh, because of the veto. In fact, the use of the veto has increased uh, quite considerably in, in recent years. Regional organizations have taken on more of a role in international peace and security. In the global economy, now these are indeed interesting times. The power of capital and capitalism went through a period of huge resurgence uh, from the 1980s onwards. There was a move to deregulate industries, including uh, financial markets, to privatize state services, to reduce tariffs and other trade barriers, and generally to kind of roll back the state uh, in, many, in many ways. And these empowered a lot of corporations and, and market actors. There's all been, also been, together with that, an increasing attempt to kind of govern through markets, to try to use markets as a mechanism of governance. And the idea here is that if we can set up markets correctly, uh, we can create the right kinds of conditions for competition, and then the markets will do their work. They will find the most efficient uh, solutions to our problems. Technology has transformed the global economy. We know that it's also transformed the way we think about ruling the world. We now talk a lot more about uh, network governance, governance through algorithms. Um, uh, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've also seen uh, a sea change in the rise of certain emerging economies. At one point, these were called the BRICS economies, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But of course, China is really the big player uh, uh, in that movement. And there have been new institutional forms, new institutional forms have emerged to reflect this sort of changing balance uh, of power in the, in the world economy. So uh, some of them are not directly connected to China. So uh, the GATT was wrapped up into the WTO, uh, the World Trade Organization, and now has much, much broader reach. The European Union, has now replaced the European communities. As I said earlier, the European Union often acts like a state in many ways. It has a foreign policy. Um, there's, a, there's a Eurozone. 
uh, and so on. But the BRICS economies uh, have established international institutions of their own. So something called the BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank was established in 2014 as a kind of arrival to the World Bank and the IMF. And then in 20, 2016, China established the Asian Infrastructure uh, 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 Investment Bank, which is kind of the institutional arm of China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. There's been other changes. The G7, which used to be really global north economies that sort of was a steering committee for the world's economy, is now more and more replaced by the G20, which includes the BRICS economies and a bunch of other economies uh, from the global south. So things are changing. Within the last five years uh, or so, we've seen further changes. Uh, after a long period of sort of rampant globalization now, we're facing a period of deglobalization or retreat from globalization. And we've seen that in some of the more nationalist, sort of isolationist rhetoric of world leaders. Uh, uh, moves like Brexit, uh, the, the sort of uh, the steps that have been taken to control and in some, way, some ways really stymie the World Trade Organization. Uh, in public health, uh, states still set their policies individually, right? We saw that with the different approaches that were taken around the world in response to, to COVID-19. But the WHO is an important actor, the World Health Organization is an important actor. It, it continues to carry out its traditional work in technical assistance and advocacy and leading vaccination campaigns. But in the early 2000s, it also acquired new emergency powers, the power to declare a public uh, a health threat, a public health emergency of international concern. And we've seen that power being used uh, several times in recent years. There, there are also more, there's also more activity in the area of public health by uh, private foundations uh, and public-private partnerships. So, uh, for example, in the area of vaccines, there's uh, a body called Gavi, the Vaccine Initiative, which includes donor, it's sort of an alliance, or the Vaccine Alliance. It includes governments, international organizations, companies from the vaccine industry, and also private donors like uh, the, the, the Gates Foundation. In the area of the environment, again, states play an important role, but on top of that, we've got new international institutions in relation to climate change, a public-private partnership called the Global Environment Facility, again, using private actors together with governments, and uh, more use of market-based mechanisms. So think in the area of, of, of uh, climate change about cap-and-trade or, or emissions trading schemes. That's essentially a kind of a constructed market to try to govern the area uh, of climate change. Let me try and pull together some of the themes and pick out um, uh, some key threads here. First, uh, we can see a growing number of different kinds of actors and entities engaged in what we might call ruling the world. We sort of began with empires and states, and then the beginning of international organizations, but we saw more and more international organizations, we saw growing transnational communities of experts and financial institutions and global corporations and private foundations and markets uh, and networks and more and more and more. So there's a, there's a sort of a, a burgeoning of actors that are quite importantly involved uh, in ruling the world. The second thing is that all of these actors tend to evolve and adapt and expand their activities over time in ways that would never have been expected when they were first established. So 
their activities and their missions come to overlap with one another. In other words, the arrival of new actors on the scene, new world rulers, doesn't displace really the existing world rulers. It doesn't push them out completely. They tend to instead kind of layer on top of the existing or, or over the existing uh, structures or perhaps maybe sort of intermingle with the, the existing structures. So we can see all these different actors involved in ruling the world in ever more complex and intersecting ways. They work together, they compete, uh, and so on. So to many international lawyers, the people I talk to in my, sort of in my scholarly life, this is kind of, kind of a frightening picture because international lawyers often like hierarchy, clear rules, clear structures. And what they see is an ever-fragmenting picture, right? Global governance, world rule is becoming more and more fragmented and therefore perhaps more and more out of control of people like, like international lawyers. I think it might be more helpful to think of this trend as a kind of ecology or ecologies of world rulers. So uh, we have different actors uh, and entities competing and cooperating in lots of different overlapping ways, just like you know, a forest ecology or something like that. There's also a kind of a legal ecology where there are lots of different laws, legal systems which are more or less self-contained, rules, principles, ideas, overlapping, interacting, uh, feeding off each other. And these legal elements are both empowering and constraining. So they empower other actors, uh, legal institutions, lawmakers empower other actors, often the, 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 exist, the already powerful actors, but sometimes also the weaker actors, and they can sometimes constrain other actors. The third theme or, or trend that I'd like to pull out is that these processes of multiplication, evolution, expansion, interaction, and so on, are not linear. Instead, change can really accelerate at certain moments. For example, at moments of crisis. Think about the changes that took place after the First World War, the Second World War, all the way through to the war on terror and possibly now the war in Ukraine. Think about the changes that take place after crises like pandemics or economic crashes. And world rulers, if you think of this sort of ecology again, can be transformed by new ideas and technologies. So new ideas in economics uh, or development or public health or demography influence what world rulers do. Changes in computing and communication technologies also change how governance is carried out. The fourth theme that I want to pull out is the way the world has been ruled is not good, right? It's not great. It's, we're not in a good situation. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't want to sort of leave you on a, a super happy note. Maybe this is too obvious to be worth saying, but more rules, more rulers is not necessarily a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It depends on what the rules and, and the rulers are doing. We can go forwards, we can go backwards. We can often do both uh, at the same time. Responses to crises Solutions to problems that arise are not perfect, and solutions can create new problems that then need to be solved by new uh, mechanisms or relationships of, of governance. We're also still living with a lot of institutions that are not really fit for purpose. Actors and instruments that 
may have been a good idea at one point, may have worked well, uh, more or less well at, at one point in time, no longer do so. And then there are some glaring gaps, some areas where we probably need more actors, we need more rulers uh, to step in and do something. And here we might all think of climate change. I'd like to try to end on a more kind of hopeful note. Uh, I do think that the present moment uh, offers us some hope, some opportunities uh, for, for positive change. So, so where can we find these? Well, the first point I want to make is that I've given you three snapshots in time, but what I haven't told you about is all the moments in between those snapshots. Uh, and most of my research is actually about those moments in between the snapshots. I'm trying to understand how and why the structures of world rule or global governance that we have uh, today have changed, how they've changed between these snapshot kind of moments that I, that I described. So if I had more time, I'd get into all of that, and, and there we would see that those stories are more about ongoing processes of struggle for a better world. Processes of struggle that are led by social movements, by environmentalists, by, uh, by indigenous groups, by peace movements, by individuals, by idealists, and hopeful people of all kinds, by activists, uh, people who take action in the world. And these are not people, I think, by and large, who want to rule the world, but they, they are people who want to make the world a better place. They don't always get that, what they want, but they can make small incremental uh, differences over time. So I think that's a, a source of hope, and I'm sorry that it wasn't a central part of my talk this evening. The second point I'd like to leave you on is that, as we've seen, um, changes in global governance have never been linear. So they respond to crises a lot of the time. And there's no doubt that we're living through times of pretty intense interlocking crises, so maybe the fact that things could change, might change quite quickly, uh, might give us some comfort in a strange way. If we ourselves individually continue the struggle, if we add our voices, our shoulders where we can, then we might find ourselves in the right place at the right time to make some kind of positive change. The last point that I want to make, and this is a bit of a sort of a practical point to end on, the overlaps between the world rulers that I described, the way they have grown and now overlap with each other, those areas where they compete and cooperate, I think are kind of leverage points. I think those are opportunities. Um, they're kind of uh, chinks in the armor. I mean, it doesn't sound like that because they're overlapping, but they are, they're sort of gaps in the system uh, where change might be possible. We're adding a little more pressure, a little more force to one side or, or the other of an issue, linking together different ideas in particular ways could, uh, could make a big difference. And I'd like to end with a quotation. This isn't from uh, the Tears for Fears song, but it, it's a quotation that relates to this last point that I was trying to make about uh, accepting that the world we live in is imperfect, about getting to know and embrace its imperfections, finding the gaps to work in to do what we can. And this is from uh, the great political scientist and theorist of international relations, Leonard Cohen, who said, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So thanks very much for your attention, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts and maybe being able to answer some questions.
um, the way to get the best world possible might involve some kind of uh, global entity that sort of governs the whole world, you know, gl global government or something like that. Do you think it's a possibility in ever happening? The world government uh, is quite an old idea. Um, and it goes in and out of fashion a little bit, right? So there was a period after the Second World War when there was a very active uh, sort of world federalism movement that tried to promote this idea that coming out of the Second World War, what we need is a federal structure for the world that, that would be, a, you know, a single world government, but also decentralized in certain, in certain respects. Um, to, allow for, to allow for kind of freedom at you know, more local or, or national levels. And that was probably um, squashed in a way by the realities of the Cold War. You know, there may have been some hope towards the end of the Second World War that these, you know, the five great powers that ended up on the Security Council um, could kind of work together and establish something really cooperative. Uh, but the realities of, of the Cold War, I think, put, a, put an end to that. Um, interestingly, it's an idea that's coming back in, in some areas you know, of, of international relations. I think there's probably always been some international lawyers who, who, who believe in it. I think it's, uh, it's possible. I, I think it's difficult to see how it would happen now uh, with the kinds of divisions that we have. Uh, and the, the, ch the challenge, the... Um, the, the fear that people express is that if we create a single world government that has coercive power, how do, we, how do we know that the people who get to control it are not bad people, right? <laughs> who are not going to do bad things with that kind of power. So I think we're probably not at the point in human history right now when, that, when that's possible. On the other hand, the, the system that, has, that we did set up after the Second World War, the system of sort of functional decentralization and then increasingly um, uh, uh, regional decentralization as well, uh, has brought with it a whole lot of problems, I think, in terms of how to connect up the dots between the different actors, uh, how to make, make sure they're working together and not working against each other uh, to solve the real problems that we're facing. So I think some, some more experimentation is going to be needed in, in the years ahead uh, that might, uh, and more thinking that might go beyond the system that we have now, that might go more in that direction of a more joined up, perhaps federalist model uh, for global governance. I'd like to uh, ask you how you see the resurgence of nativist and fascistic movements uh, across the world playing out, and are they going to get worse and really undermine democracy, or are they just a flash in the pan? Yeah, it's a very complex, uh, <laughs> complicated question. Um, an answer to that question would have to begin with quite a deep analysis of the causes of those, of those movements. And some of those causes are, you know, are economic, I think. There, there is certainly a lot of inequality in the world, which provides a breeding ground for nationalist, separatist, isolationist kinds of, of uh, rhetoric and, and movements. Um, some of the causes, you know, are sort of age-old impulses towards uh, separation, towards, you know, my, my, my group is superior to your group. 
Um, some of the causes, I think, are more recent, and they come out of the way that the, uh, the Cold War ended uh, in the 1990s, and um, it ended on with a sort of a, with a feeling that now we have reached the end of history. I mean, this is the this is the phrase that was that was used, and it meant something slightly different. But really, the sense that we've we've reached sort of the ultimate point in in human development, um, and it's really about uh, democracy and capitalism. Um, and often, the demands of capitalism might um, take precedence over the, the demands of democracy. The 1990s was a really interesting moment when there was a huge amount of possibility and a huge amount of hope uh, for a new kind of world order, a new kind of system. But I think it was a missed opportunity and it, and it led a lot of groups of people in different parts of the world actually uh, to feel alienated from what was going on around them whether it was in, in terms of the extremes of poverty and wealth that they were seeing or, you know, um, sort of sudden changes in demography or, or what have you. A lot can come down. I mean, as somebody who sort of studies um, the history of these kinds of things, a lot can come down to really strange contingencies or turning points, right? Um, somebody gets elected, somebody doesn't get elected, right? Um, you know, if the... If the America Firsters were elected in the Second World War in the United States and it wasn't um, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, the United States wouldn't have entered the Second World War. Who knows where we would have gone, right? And I think that's always the case, right? S small things can make, can make big differences. I, I don't want to be in the business of predicting the future. I think there are the underlying trends, the underlying problems will be with us for a while and will be part of this whole process of trying to figure things out and move, push things in a better direction. Thank you.